I've run a couple marathons, but I don't know if I told you, maybe I've told some of you about the last one I ran. You see, the first one, I didn't do as well as I thought I would do. And I was quite discouraged about that. And so what I decided to do, was I decided to up my training. And I ran in my training like 40% more miles than the first training cycle I did. So I don't know. I, I can't do the quick math here. But I probably ran four or 500 miles when I was training the first time. And the second time, I ran like what would be 40% more, like 800 miles or something like that. And so I felt like I was ready to go. I was ready to conquer the world. And uh, something interesting happened that second marathon. I started at the starting line, which is not interesting. That's very appropriate. I started at the starting line. It was a few minutes late. Uh, that's another story. The marathon, they got started late, which is probably not too common. But we started down the course. And as you may know, especially if you've run a marathon, I'm assuming you know, and even if you don't, that there's water stations along the, 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 the course. And they, they have water for you. They have Gatorade oftentimes. And then sometimes at some of the stations, they have like little um, food that you can eat to kind of like they have gels that you can take. Um, so they can give you energy. Sometimes they have like little M&Ms or some, something like small that you can actually eat while you're running. And so I was running, and I came to that first station, and I stopped, and I started drinking a big Gatorade. And then I wanted a second one. And then I noticed they had some of those like goodies, and I just, I just stopped, and I just started picking out on those goodies. And I, I decided that that's all I was going to do. I, I was like, you know what? <laughs> this is good stuff here. And besides, like, there's 24 more miles. Like, so I just literally, I just, for like three hours, I just stayed at that water station. And I just ate. I feel bad for Camille because she was, like, waiting for me, like, at the finish line. Well, where is he? And I just, I just, I just for three hours, I just pigged out. I was just, like, scarfing it down. And they were nice enough not to, like, kick me out and say, you have to go on to the next, you know, station. Uh, but I didn't even feel like I had enough energy to go on to the next station. I was like, well, maybe they have good food at the next one. Of course, that's not what happened. <laughs> because there is a singular point, there is a singular mission when you are running a marathon, do you know what that single mission is? It's to finish. You have one goal and one goal only. Well, I'm being a little dramatic here. But you have one goal and one goal only, and that is to finish the race. You are focused on getting over that finish line. And this was a situation I was so focused this time, last time, when I ran, I started walking through the water stations, and that was the death of me. I was like, oh, this feels so good. <laughs> and so I started walking, and then I would run for a little ways, and then I would walk a little ways. This time, I did not even so much as walk through those stations. Some people advise you to do that, but I said, you know what? I know that if I stop running, I'm going to stop running. Now, another thing happened. 
from about mile six, I needed to go to the bathroom. And I said, nope, not going to do it. Not stopping. There's Porta Johns, you know, every few miles. I said, ain't going to happen. And so I held it for three hours because I had one goal and one goal only, and that was to finish the race and do better than I did the last time. And I did, by the way. But when you run the race, there is a single vision that you have. There is a single focus. I want you to go back in your imagination. I want you to go back into your, in your imagination to 2,000 years ago. The disciples have just had their world turned upside down. They have witnessed the cross event. They have had a a redefining of, as we've talked about in this series, this teaching series, they have had a redefining in their minds and in their hearts and in their imaginations of the very idea of God. God to them had gone from this detached, self-serving God to a self-giving, self-emptying, loving God. This was a completely redefining in their minds. They had discovered that God was not like the other gods of the nations around them. God was not like the emperors around them who tried to win conquests by force and violence and manipulation. The cross had shown them that God only uses love as his method of winning people. And this was what they discovered. And they discovered, as we talked about last week, that this God was a God for all people. That God was not simply the God of the Hebrews. God was not simply the God of the Israelites. The plan all along had been to welcome in all the nations into this family. This was unheard of. That there could be a community, there could be a family that was multiracial, multi-ethnic. And that all people, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, Greeks and Hebrews and and people of all races could come into this family. It was such a radical idea. And so those early disciples, they they feel this, this excitement burning within them. They feel this passion. They feel this eagerness about this this beautiful vision that they see. And so in your mind, they are there in an upper room and they are talking to one another. And in, in light of all this that they have just experienced, they're sitting there and they say to one another, you know what we should do? We should put on a program where we get these really bright lights and we play this really awesome music and we offer... We offer like coffee and cupcakes and, and we have people and every week we put on this program and we, we advertise and, and, and we say, yeah, come to this building and have this program with us. And then somebody else comes along and said, oh, well, hold on, hold on. I think the music we do should be hymns. If we're going to do music, we need to do hymns. And they say to themselves, oh, you know what we should do? We should should hold these other programs during the week where we just come with ourselves and we just talk to each other. And we just have prayer and, and then we do this sort of thing. And I know what we should We should hold elections where we try to, every year we have to nominate different people to hold this position and that position. Do you think that's what was going on in the early church? 
They're like, oh, yes, let's just put on a program. Let's just try to make the best church we can, the most exciting, the most attractive, and let's make sure we have this music or we have that music. Let's make sure we paint the building this color or we have the carpet that color. Is that, you think, what was going on in the conversations among the early disciples? Do you think that's what they were all about? I want to look this morning because I have been challenged afresh of this idea that that the church of God, the family of God, has a singular vision and mission. As a matter of fact, it's not even that the church has a mission. It's that, as we're going to learn, the mission has a church. It's a very important distinction, and we'll unpack that this morning as we continue to look at this idea of a viral revolution that God has promised would take place in the end of days. But I read this this thought in this book by Francis Chan that is quite confrontational. Francis Chan is a very famous Christian pastor. He, at one point, pastored a huge mega church in California, and then he said, you know what, something's not right with this. And he said, I, I, gotta, I gotta leave ministry because he was just getting too popular and people you know, wanted his autograph wherever he went. And he's like, this is something's not right here. And so he quit the ministry. And after taking a few years of a break, he decided to start a home church movement in San Francisco. And so now he has different home churches that meet in different homes in San Francisco. But he wrote this book that I read this recently. Our leadership team has been reading it. And it's from his book called Letters to the Church. And notice what he says. He goes, we live in a time when people go to a building on a Sunday or Sabbath morning, as the case may be, attend an hour-long service and call themselves members of the church. Interesting. He says, does that sound shocking to you? Of course not. This is perfectly normal to us. This is what it means to be a church member. But have you ever read the New Testament? Do you find anything in Scripture that is even remotely close to the pattern we have created? Do you find anyone in the New Testament who, quote-unquote, went to church? The fact that we have reduced the sacred mystery of church to a one-hour service we attend is staggering. But are we sure what Jesus is looking for is well-attended church services? Is that what Jesus is looking for? Is that what he's after? I want to turn your attention this morning to the, the, the beginning, the foundations of the church in the book of Acts. The book of Acts, and we're going to notice what interactions that Jesus had with his disciples right before he was going back up into heaven. We read this fascinating story. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation now. This is taken from Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8 from the New Living Translation. The writer Luke says this, once when he was eating with them, that is Jesus, he's eating with his disciples, he commanded them. He says, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I want to pause right here for a second. Because what God is inviting us to do is to experience the Spirit's indwelling. He's telling the disciples that they need to have the Spirit in order to accomplish what he was tasking them to accomplish. As I didn't put this quote in the slides, but as Francis Chan also says, and I shared this with the leadership team this morning, and I'm going to paraphrase it now because I don't have it right in front of me, but 
If we can accomplish our mission without daily passionate prayer, then our mission is too small. We need to pursue tasks that are impossible to do except by the Holy Spirit's indwelling. And if we, in our own strength, can accomplish it, then our vision is not large enough. And so it's great when we come to a a vision or a mission and we think, oh man, there's no way we can do that. That is way too big for us. It's at those moments that we say, praise God, because now we'll be on our knees seeking the Spirit's power and indwelling. So God is inviting us to be filled with the Spirit. He he invited the early apostles to be filled with the Spirit, to be baptized with the Spirit, not just with the water. Now notice what the disciples say. So when the apostles, the disciples were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? So they're still thinking in human terms. They're still thinking in earthly ideas. They, even though they had seen the cross, even though they had seen the resurrection, they were still thinking that Jesus was going to set up an earthly kingdom. And as we hinted at a little bit last week, Jesus says, my kingdom is what? Not of this world. My kingdom is not of this world. He had no allegiance to any particular country or nation. He was setting up a heavenly kingdom that, that reaches across all nationalities and people. And so they're like, okay, are you going to set up your kingdom now? And Jesus is like, that's not what I'm about. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to liberate the Jews from Rome. I am trying to set up a spiritual heavenly kingdom. And so then he goes on to say, he replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you And check this out now. And you will be my what? You will be my what? You will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, starting there, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This was the task as they were thinking about this beautiful message, as they were thinking about this this redefining of God, as they were thinking about the family of God, now including everyone, Jesus said, this is your task as my followers. You are going to receive the Spirit, you are going to be empowered by Him, and then you are going to go out into the world and you are going to testify and declare the good news about who I am. It's kind of very similar to how Matthew ends his gospel, as he explains Jesus before he ascends to heaven. Perhaps you're familiar with this as well, but it's in Matthew chapter 28, echoing what he says here in Luke, uh, sorry, in Acts. And it says, and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and do what? Make disciples. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm sure I pointed this out before, and you maybe heard it before, but in the original language, there is literally only one part of that that is in what is called the imperative form. You guys, it's been a while since I've, I've, I've done grammar with you guys, but uh, so you got. You guys will come back to it. But what is an imperative? What is an imperative, folks? Come on. School is back in session. It's a 
command, right? An indicative is merely describing what is true. An imperative is saying, okay, you need to do this. And although it looks like it otherwise in this English version, there's actually only one imperative in the whole verse we just read. And it's not go. Literally in the original language, Jesus is saying is as you go, as you are out and doing life, as you go, and here's the imperative, you are to what? Make disciples. That is your singular task. I have raised you up, and this has been God's intent from the very beginning. I have raised you up to be a blessing to the world, to be a kingdom of priests, so that you invite other people into the family. This is not just something that I'm blessing you with to have as a blessing in your life. I am blessing you to be a blessing to others so that you invite them into the family of God. That is your singular task. It is not to show up every water station and just stay at that water station. Some of us run a marathon and we think that's the thing. We think going to the building on Sabbath morning is the thing. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the thing. The thing is you going out and making disciples. The weekly Sabbath service is like the water station that you gently get refreshed and you keep going for the rest of the race. Amen? And that's what Jesus tells the disciples their task is. That is the thing. Check this out. As I just alluded to a second ago, there's this really powerful idea that I was introduced to a few years ago. This is a South African missiologist named Alan Hirsch. He's South African, Jewish heritage, lives in Australia. Pretty cool way to live, huh? But he shares it this way. He says, although we frequently say the church has a mission, a more correct statement would be the mission has a church. You know, we kind of sit around sometimes. Good churches will sit around and say, okay, we want to come up with a mission statement. What is our mission? And what he's saying is, no, 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 no. The church doesn't come up with some mission. The church is the mission. It is the thing that the mission has recruited to accomplish its mission. That's why we exist. We exist to align with God's mission so that we go out into the world and be disciple makers who invite other people into the family of God. So he says, The church has a mission. No, a more correct statement would be the mission has a church. The church's true and authentic organizing principle is mission. When the church is in mission, it is the true church. So the implication, of course, is that when we're not in mission, we're not the true church. He says the church doesn't have an agenda. It is the agenda. In other words, again, God's God's grand goal all along was to bring people into his family, into the good news of his acceptance and his love. And he says, okay, how can I best accomplish that? How can I bring people into fellowship with me? And he says, oh, I know, I am going to, I'm going, he actually did it with Abraham first. He said, okay, I'm going to find a family to then go out and welcome other people into the family. And that's what that family is called to do. And that's what the church is called to do, is to, to, to continue along the, the path of, of what God called Abraham to do. He says the church doesn't have an agenda. It is the agenda. The church doesn't have a missional strategy. It is the missional strategy. So again, God's thinking to himself, how can I best accomplish 
what I'm trying to accomplish. And he said, I'm going to raise up a, a family, a body of people, a community of believers who are singularly focused on that. It wasn't like he said, okay, I have this group of people. Now what am I going to get them to do? Hmm, okay. Maybe I'm going to have them like put on programs. That's, that's what I think I'll have them do. Uh, maybe I'll have them get together and sing songs together. That's, you know, again, don't misunderstand me. There's, this is part of the mission. It needs to be a part of the mission, but it is not the mission. God has, called, God has called a people out of the world, and I use that in the most broadest sense. He has called a people out of the world to, to empower us by his spirit so that we can go back into the world and invite others into his family. Notice this quotation by this other missiologist named Leslie Newbegin. He says, there is no participation in Christ without participation in his mission to the world. So what he's saying there, that's quite staggering, is that if you and I want to get involved with Jesus, if we want to be about his heart and his love, he says we can't do it unless we are following him into the world and making disciples in the world. There's no such thing as just kind of like dabbling in Jesus. If we're going to be about Jesus, we're going to be about his mission in the world. And he goes on and says, a church that is not the church in mission is no church at all. That's quite a a sobering way to put it. But again, God has invited us. He is inviting us to be about his mission. As we think about this viral revolution that, that is going to illuminate the earth with God's glory, this is the singular task when we get on board with Jesus' mission, with God's mission. And so the question is, are you seeking participation with Christ? And if you are, have you understood that to participate with Jesus is to participate in his mission. You know, it's kind of like running that marathon and just stopping at those water stations. It's kind of like having a job and not carrying out the, the job anymore. You're just showing up to work every day and, you know, goofing off or whatever. Like, God is inviting us to understand what it means to be a follower of his. Somewhere else, one of these authors have said, we live in a staggering time when we believe that you can be a Christian and not follow Jesus. It's an interesting way of putting it, that you can be a Christian and not follow Jesus. I've, I've shared with you before that I have a prayer journal that I have found to be very um, very transformative in my own walk with Jesus. And one of the reasons it's transformative is because it's, a, it's like a, a living witness to God's working in my life. And I'll go back and I'll regularly read it, and every day I'll take a, one entry and I'll, a couple of them, and I'll read them. And one of the things that was most fascinating to me is um, probably about five years ago, I was so enamored with, and I, I think I've shared this before, but I was so enamored with just sitting in my office chair 
and reading, as Camille likes to say, theologies. You like to do your theologies, she would say. And I love to just get into the deep tomes about the nuances of Hebrew terminology. And, you know, I, lo- I mean, don't the rest of you? Um, and, you know, just studying the realities of epistemology and, you know, all these other ologies and so forth. And I like to write articles and send them off and write books and I thought man this is what God has gifted me to do and as, I, as again as I'm writing in, in my prayer journal I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing this like cognitive dissonance where I'm feeling called to express that gift but also realizing that no matter what field of ministry or what field of life I'm in even if I was a, even if I was a doctor, even if I was a teacher, if I was a skilled laborer in some other field, I, I, I felt like, but I need to be about like introducing people to Christ. And I just said, but I don't feel compelled to do that. And I just can't like get out of this pattern of me just focusing so much on the deep theological realities of church. And I said, God, you need to like give me a heart to introduce people to Jesus. Because I just don't feel motivated to do it. And I know I should be, but I know I'm not doing it. And I don't know how to get out of this rut. And then just something miraculous happened. In the span of a, a few years, I went from only wanting to like look at the nuances of theology to like only thing I want to do now is just introduce people to Jesus. Like that's, that's, that, that's such a deep passion in my heart and it was only the work of the Spirit. Honestly, that's all it was. It wasn't like I tried harder to do it. It was God orchestrated my life and you know, I've, again, I've shared this probably repeatedly in the past but God orchestrated my life such that I came to the place where he showed me my need for him in such a way that it totally changed my whole outlook. And And I don't share this again to be like boastful and say, hey, look at me. I'm such a great missionary for Jesus. I'm such a great disciple maker. But like, I'm so grateful that God has, by his spirit, it's only the work of the spirit has completely shifted my orientation from just being about sitting in my office reading theology to going out and, by God's grace, living theology and inviting others into the family of God. I want to challenge you this morning to not be the guy or the girl that stops at the water stations and thinks that's what the marathon is about. I want you to be the man, the woman, the child who says, God, I know the task in front of me is to finish that lot, finish, to, to cross that finish line and to bring others into the family along the journey. And you say, well, hold on, I'm so broken and I'm so wounded and I have so much that I have to worry about in my own life. 
You know how busy I am? Right? You know how busy I am? You know how I have to work on myself before I can bring others into the family of God? And I would simply say, number one, there's very little, if anything, that brings healing than looking outside of ourselves and looking to other people's needs and other people's struggles and saying, okay, how can I bless them? How can I serve them? And then number two, we've said this often, but it's not about doing something additional. It's about doing what you're already doing. Jesus said, as you go, make disciples. He didn't say, okay, do your thing and then go out and make disciples. He says, as you go. So as you're sitting in the lunchroom or as you are in class or as you are studying, saying, who can I... Who can I join up with here and invite them to enter into my life and I can live out the good news of God's mission in front of them? It's just about joining up with what God is doing. So that's what we as as God's church are about as we think about the revolution that will turn the world upside down, as we are those people who we gather, we huddle together on Sabbath morning and other times during the week, but we huddle together so that we can get energy to go out during the week and to be on his mission with him and look to see where he's already working by his grace. So do you want to participate with Jesus? Want to participate with his mission?